good to see everyone here this morning at uh, Grace Church Medina Campus. All of you in the room, of course, if you're watching on live stream and you're catching us that way, we just want to extend a very special welcome to you as well. And I just want to say that if you are a guest, if it's your first time here, we're going to extend a real special welcome to you. Thanks so much for being our guest. And to kind of catch you up to speed, we are actually in the midst of kind of a long and a big series that's actually called Jesus Over All. And uh, what we're thinking about, just real simple, is we're kind of pursuing this question together. And the question is, what does it look like for Jesus to be over all in my life? What does it look like for every area of my life to be defined and to be directed by Jesus? And so we're asking that question and we're thinking through, practically speaking, what that might look like. And so because of that, what we've been doing is we've kind of been piecing it out and we've been talking about different areas of our life, different aspects of our life. We've been asking, what does it look like for Jesus to define and direct this aspect of my life? And so that brings us to the series that we're in right now, kind of the micro-series, Jesus Over My Relationships. And so for, the, for this kind of chunk of this series, we're starting to think about what does it look like for Jesus to define and direct how I interact, the different relationships and the relational dynamics of my life. So last week, if you were here, you might remember uh, Jordan did a phenomenal job of walking us through Jesus Over My Singleness. And we actually started to think about if you are a single person, what does it look like to live in a way that I can honor God with my singleness? And so we talked about that last week. If you missed that, I would encourage you to go back and check that out. Jordan did a phenomenal job leading us through that conversation. This week, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of look at the other side of that. And I want to talk to you, we're going to talk together about Jesus over my marriage. So that's what we're going to be thinking about as we talk about relationships. Today, we're going to talk about the idea of what does it look like to honor God and what does it look like for Jesus to be over my marriage? Now, let me just say, I know that for many of you, some of you in this room, when I put that on the screen, you might be thinking to yourself, I'm not married. And because of that, you might be tempted to just kind of tune me out. You might be thinking, well, this is not for me. This message is obviously for somebody else. And so I guess I'll just kind of tune out for the rest of the service here today. And I just want to encourage you before we jump into this today to not do that. And the reason is because I am very, very, very convinced that this conversation we're going to have is not just for married people, but this is a conversation that actually is for all of us. And especially, especially for those of us who follow Jesus, this is a very important conversation for all of us. And I want to give you a couple reasons. There's, there's more than a couple, but let me just give you a couple. Here's the first reason. The first reason is because many singles will get married. Many singles will get married. So here's the truth. Statistically speaking, if you are single in this room, or if you're someone who has been divorced or, or maybe is in that, that process or whatever, statistically speaking, most people will get married or will get remarried. Even though in our culture today, even though that marriage is, is, is happening less frequently than it has in years previous in our culture, and even though people are getting, later, getting married later in life than they have traditionally within our society, the truth is that statistically, most people will get married. And so let me just say that if you're a single person who desires to be married or you're open to being married or remarried, here's why I think this is such an important conversation for you. I think in some ways, you are at a greater advantage than those of us who are married. And the reason is because the best time to get a vision for what God desires in marriage is before you're married. It's the best time. You have an opportunity to build something where for some of us who are married, quite honestly, we have some rebuilding to do. And so I think that in some ways you're at an advantage. That's one reason. Let me give you another reason why I think this is so important. Another reason is because marriages within church impacts all of us. Okay, marriages that exist within the church have an impact on 
all of us. I, just, I actually just want to reiterate something that Jordan said last week that I really appreciated. I thought he did such a good job. But something he said, talking about singles, is he said that this is a conversation that's important for all of us because according to the Bible, those of us who follow Jesus, the Bible's gonna say that we are like a body, that we are the body of Christ. And what that means is it means that we are so connected to each other, that we're like a family, like a spiritual family, that what happens to one part of us should impact the rest of us. So we should be invested. We should care about the flourishing of each other. In fact, let me just quote what Jordan said. I love this. He said, married people should have a stake in the flourishing of singles within our church. Yes and amen. And those who are single should have a stake in the health of the marriages within our church. Yes and amen. We should care for, we should pray for each other's flourishing. So we should care for one another. And because we're part of a body, because we're a spiritual family, what's happening to you should matter to me. And what's happening to me should matter to you. So for those reasons, and I'll be honest, there's a lot more, but I think for those reasons, it, this is a conversation that is for every single one of us who's here today. So having said that, I wanna invite you, if you would, why don't you grab your Bible, and as we talk about marriage, I wanna take you to one of the, kind of one of the climactic passages that deals with marriage in the Bible. We're gonna go to Ephesians chapter five, okay, Ephesians five. So if you wanna grab your Bible, you wanna open that up, Ephesians five, page 949 in the Bibles that are under the chairs in front of you. And you can go ahead and you get to Ephesians chapter five. If you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those home. You can make that a gift from us to you. We'd love for you to have a Bible. So Ephesians five is where we're gonna go. Now, as you're finding that passage, um, let, me, let me see if I can tee up our conversation today this way. So let me ask you this question. When I say this phrase, picture perfect wedding, what comes to your mind? All right, so I just want you to think about that for a second. When I put that up on the screen, picture perfect wedding, what kind of images come to your mind? Uh, my guess is that for some of us, immediately what comes to mind is we probably have, I don't know, maybe we imagine sort of a picturesque location uh, maybe we imagine a, kind, a certain type of weather <laughs> pattern. Uh, maybe for uh, some of us, we imagine um, uh, uh, floral arrangements. Uh, we think of centerpiece. Maybe uh, for sure, I think all of us would probably think of a, a beautiful bride in a stunning dress and, and a strapping young man and a couple who's in love. And I think those pictures come to my mind. Uh, I, I think that anyone who has been married and anyone who is getting married dreams of a picture-perfect wedding day. Now, we don't always get the picture-perfect wedding, but I think sometimes we dream of that. I actually thought it was funny. I found a few pictures of some folks who had less than a picture-perfect wedding day. I thought it might be kind of fun to show some of those. So these are a couple that I found. Uh, this one, not sure, not sure the circumstances that happened before, but you know that probably made for a good story, whatever, whatever happened there. Uh, you know, a lot of times people dream of a beautiful beach wedding. Uh, these people had that dream too, and uh, you, know, you, can't control, you can't control who's at the beach, so that happens sometimes. Um, this one, I think the picture just says it all. I'm guessing they were on a dock or something, and, and you kind of, this next one is, this one's, it's, it's kind of funny, but it's also not, just because, oh gosh, I mean, just like, poof, seconds away from, so, so anyway, all I'm saying is, I think all of us desire, we want a picture-perfect wedding, um, so, but here's the bigger question, here's why I bring that up, Here, here's the bigger question, when I say, not picture-perfect wedding, but when I say picture-perfect marriage, what comes to your mind? What comes to your mind? Not when I'm, I'm not talking about the day, I'm talking about the marriage. What comes to your mind? So in other words, what picture comes into your mind when we talk about what does an ideal marriage look like? How does a husband ideally interact with his wife and how does a wife ideally interact with her husband? What is the ideal goal and purpose of a marriage? I think that's a question. And let me tell you why I think this is such an important question. 
The reason this is such an important question is because if two people enter into a marriage arrangement, into a marriage covenant, and they have two different answers to this question, I think that what can happen sometimes, it can create a lot of confusion, and it can create a lot of tension within the relationship. Maybe to give you an illustration, think about it this way. Let's say that you and I agreed that we were going to sit down together, and we were going to build a 1,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. All right, so let's say we were going to do that. One of the first things that you and I would do if we were going to build that puzzle is we would get the box top lid, and we would put it in between us. And why would we do this? Because both of us know that it's important that we're working off of a common picture, We both would know that it's important that we're working off of a common vision, that we have a common point of reference that is going to guide, direct, and inform how we interact as we're building that picture together. Now, how silly would it be, and this is a silly analogy, but how silly would it be if the two of us sat down to build this puzzle and we just came in with both of us with different pictures of what we wanted the puzzle to be? Imagine how frustrating and confusing that could be. Now, as silly as that might sound to you, I think that sometimes that's what happens in marriage. Sometimes what happens is you have two people who come into this thing, and they have a certain picture of what they think they're building together, and then as they begin to piece life together, they start to realize we don't, we're not operating off of the same idea and expectation of what marriage should be. And so because of that, because of all of that, I think that's why this passage that we're going to read is so important. Because I think this passage is going to help us answer three questions. Three, and here's the three questions that I want to spend our time thinking through we're going to see in this passage. So question number one is, okay, so what is God's intended picture for marriage? What is God's? Or how about this? If you're a person who's investigating Jesus, maybe you're still trying to figure out the, if, 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 what you believe about Christianity and the church, maybe I'll rephrase that question. Does God have a picture for marriage? Does he? And if he does, then what is that picture? And then question number two, if God does have a picture, what part do husbands and wives play in pursuing this picture? So how does God's picture inform each spouse's actions and efforts within the marriage? And then question number three, what empowers us to pursue this? Where are we gonna get the motivation and the resources to pull off this picture? So I think this this passage is gonna help us understand all three of those questions. So let me read the whole passage to us. We're gonna start in verse 21. We're gonna go down to verse 33. I'm just gonna read the whole thing, and then afterwards we're gonna go back around and we're gonna start making some observations and answering these questions. All right, so here we go. Ephesians 5, starting off in verse 21, the apostle Paul writes to the Ephesian church. Here's what he says. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just like Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one's ever hated their own body, but they feed it and they care for their body, just like Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. All right, that's the passage. Now, now let me just state the obvious. I think when we read this passage, for a whole lot of us, When we read this passage, sometimes we just immediately get tripped up 
on certain words and ideas and phrases that we see in there. And so we see words like submit. We see words like headship. And I think for some of us, quite honestly, it, it, it's a little jarring to us. And maybe for some of us, it makes us a little nervous when we read things like that. And I just want to say, for good reason, for good reason, this passage has been notoriously misused, misunderstood, and abused all throughout history. It's been used to to subjugate women. It's been used in ways that have been oppressive in so many different ways. And so for some of us, quite honestly, we have a little bit of that when we come into this passage and we read that. However, I need to say this, and I think it's really important. I think we have to be careful not to dismiss a passage of scripture because of of its abuse. And, and I, think, I think that it's important that before we start to, I wanna encourage you, if you're, if you're tempted to close your ears off because of some of the things that we just read, I wanna encourage you before we zoom in and we start explaining what some of those words and ideas are, it's important that we first zoom out and we gain an idea of what is the broader context of the conversation that helps us bring meaning to the words that we just read. So I think it's important that we do that. So here's what I actually wanna do, the way I wanna approach this. We're gonna answer those three questions But as we do that, I actually want to work through this passage backwards. Okay, so rather than starting off at verse 21, I want to actually start at the end of this passage, and I want to work backwards through the passage. Now, the reason I want to do that is because I think that it helps us unravel the Apostle Paul's logic. Okay, so first question, again, what is God's intended picture for marriage? Does God have an intended picture for marriage? And I think the answer is yes. And I think you see it actually at the end of this passage. So look with me clearly at verse 31 and 32. Here's what it says. It says, Paul says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Talking about Christ and the church. Okay, so what's the apostle Paul say? Well, I want you to notice first off here that the apostle Paul is quoting from something. Do you notice the quotation marks? So so the question, of course, is what is he quoting from? And if you have a Bible that has footnotes, you'll see very quickly where he's quoting from is he's actually quoting from Genesis chapter two. And what's happening in Genesis chapter two? It's the original marriage between the original humans. Now, at the, at the risk of, being, of sounding redundant, because if you've been with us over the past several weeks, I have said this a few times already, but I think it's so important that it bears repeating. Whenever the biblical authors, whenever Paul, whenever Jesus Whenever the biblical authors uh, are talking about issues of sexuality, of marriage, of gender, or of personhood, whenever they're doing that, the biblical authors always, always, always point us back to Genesis chapter one, two, and three. That's where they're going. And why is that? Because the biblical authors are going to say that sexuality, marriage, and gender are issues of created design, that they're issues of creation. So, so if you think about it like a puzzle, if you and I were gonna sit down and do a puzzle, what we would do is we would, we would ask, what is the manufacturer's intent? So we wouldn't come in and say, what picture do I want this puzzle to be? We would say, what was the creator's design for this puzzle? And we wanna work off of that picture. In the same way, the biblical authors are saying the same thing. If you wanna understand the point of marriage, you have to go back to the manufacturer's intent. What was God's intent? when he created marriage. And the apostle Paul is gonna say it. He's gonna say God's intent with the original marriage was that he wanted to expound on a profound mystery. God wanted to display a profound mystery. Now, I think, again, you gotta just track with me here for a second because I think this is so important. This word mystery, when it's, it's used, I know for us in our setting, when we think of the word mystery, we tend to think of something that is purposefully kept a secret or is purposefully unknowable. So for us, if I said it's a mystery, what we tend to think is, well, that means we'll never know. 
It's, it's an unsolved mystery. We'll never know. If I said it's a mystery, well, I guess we'll, guess we'll never know. But that is actually not how the Greek word is used. In fact, let me give you a Greek, de- uh, in, in the Greek, the definition of the word that's used for mystery is a truth that is not previously disclosed, but is discovered by revelation. That's the idea. What is a mystery? It's something that was previously unknown, but something that is revealed over time. In a lot of ways, it's almost like a puzzle, right? When you do a puzzle, what is it? It's a mystery at first, but as you piece it together, suddenly it's revealed in front of you. And the Apostle Paul is going to say marriage is that, that from the very beginning, God intended that marriage was going to reflect and reveal something. And what was that? And here's what he's going to say. He's going to say all along, marriage has been about Christ and the church. It is a picture of of Christ and the church. In other words, here's what Paul's saying. Marriage, human marriage, is actually not just about marriage. Marriage is not an end in itself. Marriage is actually intended to be a picture, a reflection of something bigger. I don't know if you guys ever thought about this, but I was just thinking about this a while ago, and I think it's kind of crazy. Did you guys know that Jesus actually said in Mark chapter 12 that there is not going to be human marriage in heaven? There's, there's not going to be human marriage in heaven. And I'll be honest, that makes all kinds of questions come to me. I have no idea how it's gonna work. Like I often wonder when I get to the new heavens and the new earth and I see Jessica, if I see my wife, I'm like, what are we gonna do? Like, am I just gonna like wink at her? Just be like, you know, like, member? Like, is that, I don't know. Like, how's that, I don't know how it works. Uh, but Jesus says, he's like, there's not gonna be human marriage in heaven. So here's the point. The point is that marriage is not a destination, It's not a destination. It's an illustration. Marriage is actually supposed to be a picture that points to something different. I mean, think about it, guys. What's the point of a picture? I don't mean to insult your intelligence, but we all know this. What is the point of a picture? A picture is not a substitute for the substance. It is simply something that points to a greater reality. So if I could just, if that sounds too abstract, let me give you a really silly analogy. So let's say you and I were out in the cafe afterwards, and we got on one of my favorite topics, desserts. Okay? And we were talking about what our favorite dessert is. And let's say that in the conversation, I was able to tell you that one of my favorite desserts is a pizza cookie, a pizza cookie. Uh, some of you guys have maybe never heard of that. Maybe you have. Sometimes they're called pizookies. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that. If you've never heard of a pizza cookie, you would probably hear me say that, and you'd be like, ew, that sounds nasty. Because in your mind, what you're thinking of is probably a combination of pizza and a cookie, which is really disgusting. But what I would say is I would say, no, 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 you got the wrong picture in your mind. So I would pull out my phone, right? And I would look up a pizza cookie and I would show you a picture of a pizza cookie. And I'm sorry to do this to you because I know some of you are like, oh my gosh, now I'm hungry. And, uh, but a pizza cookie, just so you know, it's a, it's a hot cookie that's baked on a skillet. And then on top of it, they put ice cream. And so it's a hot cookie with cold ice cream and it's a piece of heaven is what it is. All right. It's a wonderful thing. Now, if I show that to you, here's what you would do. You would say, oh, that was not what I was picturing. Now I can see it, right? But what you wouldn't do, what you wouldn't do is you wouldn't say, can I see your phone? And then take it and then try to eat it. You wouldn't do that. Why? Because we all know how pictures work. You would look at it and you would say, oh, I see what you're saying. And then your question would be, so where do I get it? And I'd say, oh, well, if you go to this restaurant, you can get one there. That's what happened. So here's what Paul's saying. Marriage is a picture, it's, a picture. it's supposed to show something. It's supposed to reveal something that when the onlooking world and that when others around us see it, it causes them to say, huh, what is that? That's different than anything. I, that is a love 
that I, it's so unearthly. It's, I've never seen anything like that. I, I've never seen an intimacy like that. I've never seen a relational connectedness that's anything like that. That is weird to me. That's bizarre to me, but there's something about it that's enticing to me. I've never seen, I've never seen such a mutual respect within a relationship. And it, it should cause, according to what Paul says, a, a Christian marriage should cause people to look at it and say, I've never seen anything like it. That looks really weird, but where do I get that? And listen, the Christian married person should not say the place that you get it is marriage. They should say, no, actually, this is a picture. It's a reflection of the love that Jesus has for us in the church. It's intended to be that. So here's the second question then. The second question is, if that's God's intent, if that's what God wants to accomplish, then what part do husbands play in that? And what part do wives play in this? Now, before we jump in and we read this segment about husbands and wives, I just need to make this statement because I think it's really important. Paul is gonna say that even though men and women in the body of Christ are equal, and that's true, men and women are equal. We are equal in dignity, we're equal in worth, we are equal image bearers in God's eyes. Even though we are equal, the Bible's going to say that we are not equivalent, that our roles are not the same. They're not the same. And, and, and the Bible's going to say that the way that we hash out this picture is actually done in, in, a, in a gendered response. There's a gendered response to these things. Gender roles, according to scripture, are not a tool of oppression. Now, they can be used that way and they've been abused that way, but that's not the Bible's intent. Gender roles are used, they're intended to display the image of God and to reflect Christ in the church. So that's what you're gonna see. So what that means is it means, you guys, that the roles that we're gonna see are not interchangeable. They're, they're, we, the reason is because God intends for us to, to paint a specific picture. So with that in mind, uh, what you're gonna see is that the Apostle Paul is gonna say this. Husbands, we are to take our, role, we're to take our cues from Christ. So in this picture, that, that's who we're taking our cues from. Wives, we are to take our cues from the church. How does the church respond to Christ? And so let's see what the Apostle Paul says. He's gonna start with husbands. Now, again, we are working our way backwards through this passage. So in this section here, verse 25 to 29, here's what he says. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ. Notice that. Who do we take our cues from? From Jesus. Just like Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in the same way. In what same way? Just like Christ, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for their body just like Christ does the church. So the Bible's gonna say, husbands, we take our cues from Christ, from Christ. Now, I don't know if you guys noticed, there's a lot in this passage, but I don't know if you noticed, there's one word that is used more frequently than any other word to talk about how husbands are to respond to their wives like Christ does the church. And the word that's used most frequently is the word love. Husbands are to love their wives. Five times in these verses, love. And then it's repeated actually again in verse 33, husbands should love their wives. So six times, six times in this passage, God is gonna tell husbands, love, 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 your wives, love your wives. Now, because that shows up so often, I think it's probably important that we get some clarity. What does he mean by love? Because love, love can mean a lot of things. So what does he mean? So let me see if I can help you out. Okay, the, the word that's used for love in this passage every single time is the word agape. It's the word agape. Maybe you've heard about that before. 
Um, in, in the Greek language, there's actually different words that are used to talk about different kinds of love. So for example, there's eros, because maybe you've heard of that. It's where we get the word erotic from. So that is sexual, romantic, passionate love. And the Bible's husbands are not called to eros their wives in this passage. Now, that's part of marriage, for sure. That's part of it. But that's not what husbands are called to here. They are called to agape their wife. Now, what's that word? Well, the word agape is the word that's most often used to talk about God's love for us. It's how Christ... So in other words, husbands, our love is to be shaped by and is to be shaped like Jesus' love for us. That's what it's to be shaped by and shaped like. And you might be saying, what do you mean by that? What is God's love shaped like? What is Christ's love shaped like? And I'll tell you what Christ's love is shaped like. I'll tell you. It's shaped like a cross. That's how his love is shaped. Look at the passage. He says, love your, just like Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up. He gave him, what's he talking about there? He's talking about the cross. He's talking about when Jesus gave his life, gave of his resources, gave of his rights for the sake and the flourishing of his bride who are the people of the church. That's what he's talking about. Do you guys know that in the New Testament, whenever the biblical authors talk about God's love, they almost always, almost unanimously point to one single event as the epitome of what God's love looks like. And the place they look is the cross. The cross. What is the cross? The cross is a love that is shaped like self-sacrifice. It is a love that is, that, that is shaped like I will give of myself and I will lay down my rights for the flourishing of another person. So husbands, what does our love look like? It's supposed to look like this. So, so maybe I can just say, can I just maybe speak just to the men for a moment in the room and to all men, but specifically to husbands. I think specifically to husbands, but this applies to all men. Can I just say that it seems to me, it seems to me in my experience that the most common expression of manhood that we see in our midst today seems to be an exalted, an extended adolescence in boyhood. That seems to be the most common expression of manhood that we see among us. I heard one person say that many men today are like man-agers. I don't know if you guys ever heard that. It's like teenagers, but with man at the front. Basically, they have all the same characteristics of a teenager, but they're chronologically men. Meaning that, meaning that they're, they're really concerned about someone taking care of their needs. They're really focused on toys and games and sports, and that's the primary pursuit of their heart. And really, in a lot of ways, it's just an extended childhood or an extended adolescence. That's what happens. What, I think what happens is, and that, that seems to be not only what is most common, but also what is most celebrated. And I think what happens sometimes is you have these guys, who, these men who come into marriage, and they're, they're kind of in this state of mind where the primary question that they're looking to answer is, how can I find a wife who's going to meet my needs? How am I going to find a wife who's going to take care of me? Can I, and how can I get my wife to take care of me and to, to meet my needs? But you guys, I want you to see that what the Bible's calling us to is something very different than that. The Bible's saying that we are to love, husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church, which means that he gives himself up. That, that, that our primary question, our primary question, husbands, shouldn't be how can I get my wife to meet my needs? Our primary question should be what can I do to lay down myself for the flourishing of my bride? That's a totally different question. That's the kind of love that husbands are called into, and that's a hard, that is a difficult kind of love. Some of you might be saying, can you practically help me? Like, what would be some examples of what it looks like to love that way? 
Well, I'll be honest with you. I really love this passage because I think that there's some clarity that we were given in verse 28 and 29. Uh, and I actually wanna show you verse 28 and 29 in the English Standard Version, the ESV, because I love the words that it uses. Here's what it says in the ESV. It says, in the same way, husbands should love their, their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it, just like Christ does the church. I love those two words. He nourishes and he cherishes How is a husband called to love? To give of himself, the self-sacrificial love like Christ loved the church. And he gives of himself to what end? To nourish and to cherish his wife. To nourish and to cherish. Nourish, the word there literally just means this. It means to provide for. That's what it means. It means to provide for. And I think what that means practically is this. I think it means that husbands, that we are to pursue the needs of our wife, emotional, physical, spiritual, sexual, all other kinds of needs, with the same intensity and priority that we care for our own needs. And I think that there's probably a good case to say probably even above that. And I think that the Bible's gonna say that we also are to nourish, to nourish. We are to nourish, and then we are to cherish. What does the word cherish mean? I actually love this word. The word cherish literally means to make warm. It means to make warm. This is more than just providing. This means that you are caring for somebody, that you're creating a warm place. I think what that means, husbands, it means this. It means that we're not cold that we're not relationally cold, that we're not distant, that we're not shut off. I think it means that we're not harsh, that we, don't, that we don't speak in such a way that is prickly. I think it means that we create a warm and a safe place for the flourishing of our spouse. And can I just give you a couple practical things on this? And let me just tell you, husbands, by the way, in case you feel like, oh my gosh, dude, this is, this is tough stuff. I am preaching this to myself, okay? I'm just telling you that right now. I am not an expert at these things. You can ask my wife and she'll be like, yes and amen, all right? So I am in process as well. But let me give you some tips I think might be helpful. Here's one, and I'm giving this to myself because I'm bad at this, all right? I don't know why this is the case, but anytime you think of, of something encouraging about your wife, whenever you think of something encouraging, say it out loud, like with your mouth and your face. Like get it in I don't know why, guys, this is so hard. I don't know why. I, I, there's so many times, so many times. I, in a given day, I'll think about my wife and I'll think to myself, man, she's so amazing. She does so much for our family. I'm so thankful for her. She's so beautiful. Those thoughts go through my mind all the time. And there's so many times I'm like, I just don't say it. I just don't. If there, I think if there's any proof that there really is an enemy that's against God's design for marriage, that's part of it. Why is it so hard? to just say the thing that I'm thinking out loud. I guess good. How about this one? Um, non-sexual affection. How about that one? That, that when you touch your wife, it's not always to initiate or to move into, to be leading somewhere. I think that's a, a good way to, how about this one, husbands? I think that maybe we should try to master this saying, I love you because, I love you because. And that should be something that we're not ashamed or embarrassed or feel weird about saying because we're called to love like Christ loves the church. Now, there's a lot more we could say on that, but let's move to wives. What is the Bible gonna say to wives? Well, reading the passage backwards, if you go to verse 22, it's gonna say this. Now, wives, submit yourselves to your husband as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he's the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So you guys probably see this. Wives are called to play the role of the church. So it's gonna say, just like the church acts towards Christ, that's your response to your husband. And you'll notice that the key word that is used here is the word submit. Ah, yes, everyone's favorite word, submit. Uh, For some of us, it makes us cringe when we see it. Well, if it makes you cringe, Paul says it three times. 
So, so he says to husbands, husbands, love, 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 love your wives. Wives, submit, submit, submit. And so I wanna take a minute and I wanna try to explain what this means. And as I do, don't throw anything at me, all right? So, so what does it mean when he says submit? Unfortunately, I feel like this word has so much baggage attached to it. It reminds me of the story. I don't know if you guys ever heard this story before, but there's a husband and a wife and the husband was not feeling well for a long period of time. So they finally said, we should go to the doctor and figure out what's going on. So they went to the doctor. The doctor checked out the husband and afterwards sent the wife and the husband back into the waiting room. And while they were in the waiting room, the doctor called the wife into his office. And she was like, oh no, you know? And, and so she sat down and the doctor said, well, <clears throat> I gotta tell you, I got, some, I got some bad news and I got some good news. And she was like, well, you gotta give me the bad news first. And he said, well, the bad news is that your, your husband has a, a life-threatening illness and the, the, the chance that, that there's actually a good chance that he, he could act, you could actually lose him at any moment. She's like, that is terrible news. And she said, well, is there, what's the good news? He's like, well, here's the good news. She said, he said, the good news is that if you are able to create a stress-free life for him, so if you are able to take care of all the things at home, if you're able to, to cook for him and clean for him, and if you're able to get a job to, to provide for him so he doesn't have to work, and if you're able to let him golf whenever he wants to golf and have sex with him whenever he wants to have sex, if you can provide a, a stress-free life for him, then he'll live for the rest of his life, guaranteed. So she went out to the waiting room, and her husband was like, so what was the news? What did the doctor say? And she said, it's really bad news. You're going to die. <laughs> you know, I think, I think for some reason, we get this like, we get this picture, this weird picture in our mind that that's what submission is. That submission is just like, well, I guess I'm just like a household slave for this person and I'm just supposed to do what he says and I can never, I, I can't have a thought or initiate anything or whatever that might be. And you guys, I just think that that's entirely wrong. It's entirely wrong. So let me, just, let me just clarify first off what submission is not and then I wanna talk about what it is. So what submission is not? Well, first off, submission is actually not just for wives. I think it's important that we start there right in the context of this passage. We'll actually come back to this. Verse 21, which starts the whole passage off, says, submit to one another. This is talking to husbands and wives. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Both husbands and wives are called to mutual submission to each other. Now, to be clear, the way that that submission looks, looks different. Uh, husbands are called to submit themselves to God's picture by becoming the Christ-like figure of self-sacrificial love. Wives are called to submit themselves in that picture differently by submitting themselves to their husband like the church does to Christ. But I want you to notice that both people are called to submit. Out of reverence, notice this, not for your husband, out of reverence for Jesus. So wives, you do this. You don't do this ultimately because you're submitting to him. You do this ultimately because you're submitting to God. That's why. Which means this, practically speaking, this means this. It means that if your husband is leading you or is asking you to do something that is contradictory to what God desires for you, you cannot listen to him. And why is that? Because you're submitting to him out of reverence for Jesus, ultimately to Christ, right? So submission is not just for wives. Secondly, submission is not subjugation. It does not mean subjugation. I want you to notice that. I don't know if you noticed this, but look at the passage again. Just look what the passage says. Wives, submit yourselves. Submit yourselves. Every time this command is given in the New Testament, it is given in the middle voice. Now, what does that mean? Basically, it means this. This is her decision, and this is her act. No one is forcing this on her. This is, this is a call for her to submit herself. You guys, there is never a command, not even one, that is given in the New Testament that says that one person should force another person to submit. 
It doesn't say, husbands, get your wife to submit, which is how that would read if it did say that. Right? It doesn't say that. It says, wives, submit to your husbands. Wives are called to submit to their husbands, and husbands are called to a self-sacrificial love where they die to themselves. So let me just say, wives, let me just say this. If your husband ever says to you, woman, submit, because that's what the Bible says to you, you have biblical grounds to say, man, die, because that's what the scripture calls you to do. So listen, here's the point. We have to stay out of each other's verses. Husbands, this isn't your verse. This isn't our verse. Wives, the ones about our love, that's not your verse. So this is for us, okay? This is something that we do. So what is submission? Here's what it is. Submission comes from the Greek word hupotasso. Hupotasso literally just means to come under. That's what it means. It means to order oneself under. It actually is a military term, uh, oddly enough, and it's a word that basically means to bring yourself underneath an established arrangement. That's what it means. So what's the point? Well, I think here's what it is. I think what submission is, is it's recognizing and it's responding. I think that's what it is. It is recognizing that God has a purpose and God has a picture that he has tried to create in marriage and that I have a part, that I play in that. And it's a way that I'm saying, and I'm gonna respond to that. I'm gonna respond to that. So I, I think, I love what Tim Keller said. Tim Keller said this, talking on this topic. He said, musicians, think about musicians. He said, musicians are great, are they not? But what if they didn't submit to the same key? What if they decide not to submit to the composer or the arranger or the conductor or whatever? Every time you play a game, every time you stop at a stoplight, every time you get involved in music, you are practicing submission or there's chaos. So on one hand, Christians understand that submission is not something that gets in the way of freedom. Submission, properly used, is something that creates freedom. So I think in light of that, I think it's helpful. I think in light of that, a good definition of submission is this. I think submission is a wife's inclination, inclination to receive and affirm her husband's leadership. I think that's what it is. Now notice I say inclination, because I know that, that some might be saying, well, does that mean that a wife can never initiate? Some people think that. Some people think that's what submission means. It means that a wife just has to just sit there and she can never take the lead and she can never initiate and she can never have a good idea and she just needs to wait on him to come up with a good idea. And even if I have a good idea and it's better than his and everyone else in the room knows it, I can't say it. I just have to sit here and wait for him. And no, that's not it. That's not it. Absolutely not. What is submission? I think here's what submission is. It's a recognition. It's just this. It is a recognition that God is gonna hold this man accountable He's gonna hold this man accountable for how he treats me and how he leads our family. I guess what it is. And so whenever he chooses to step into that responsibility and whenever he chooses to initiate, I am ready to receive that and I am ready to affirm that. I think that's what it is. I think it's saying, I recognize, I recognize that God has put a responsibility and a role and he is going to be ultimately accountable to God. And so because of that, when he takes initiative to live into that, when he actually tries to lead me, I wanna receive that and I wanna affirm that. Even if his attempts are clunky, which let me just tell you wives, sometimes our attempts are clunky. And there might be times that your husband tries to do something romantic and it's just sorely lacking. And there might be times that he tries to lead you and it just feels really forced. And there might be times that he tries to pray with you and it feels really unnatural. But I found that when those attempts are met with criticism or when they're met with contempt or when they're met with resistance, I believe that 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 can have a damaging effect on the heart of a man. There's something incredible when a wife says, I love it when you do that. 
You guys, can I just say, and I, I, I obviously have to be careful here because I'm not a woman, and, and, but, but, but here's what I have found. I found that in my experience that many, for many, many godly women, this is actually what they really desire, is a man who initiates, is a man who feels the weight of responsibility that God has placed on them for their family and for their marriage. I, find, I found so many times that, because guys, what is one of the greatest grievances in our society? One of the greatest grievances in our society is men who leave. So much crime, so much pain, so much, so much hurt happens because men, because men will not live into the responsibility that God has called. So I think, I think the truth is we want this. We actually want this. And so what a wife is doing is she's affirming that and she's responding to that. I think that Paul summarizes all of this, by the way, in verse 33. He says, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. That's a beautiful picture right there. Wives, husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. This beautiful, beautiful picture that we see here. Now, can I just say, I just wanna say here, I think it's easy for us when we read a passage like this, it's really easy for us to run to all the ways that this is misunderstood and misrepresented and abused. It's very easy for us to run to that. But can we just for a minute, can we just for a minute take a moment to imagine and maybe to appreciate what it would look like if this picture were working well? Just imagine for a moment if you saw this picture happening well. Imagine this. Imagine a husband. Imagine a husband who loved his wife with a self-sacrificial love. A, A husband who said, one of my goals in life is to figure out how I can leverage all of all of myself, all of my unique resources and all of my unique gifts. How can I leverage those things for the flourishing of my wife? Imagine a husband who's concerned. Imagine a husband who said, I, I, I really want to cherish, I love, and I cherish my wife. Other guys are criticizing their wives and saying the things they're frustrated with, but not you. Imagine a husband who's like, no, man, I don't understand what you're talking about. My wife is awesome. She's amazing. Imagine a husband who says, I, I, I see who God has created you to be, and I, I just, I wanna affirm that and I wanna celebrate that and I, wanna, I want to create any opportunity that I can so that you can flourish under God to be the person that God has created you to be. Imagine that. And imagine a wife. Imagine a wife who says, I so respect that man. I love that man. I respect him. And, 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 and I, I, I see the way that he initiates, I see the way that he cares for me and I, I wanna reciprocate that to him. I love when he, I love when he, when he tries to cherish me. I love, even if his attempts are lacking, I love when, he, when he's doing those things for our family. I love that. And I wanna cheer him on. I wanna cheer him on. I wanna respect him. Can you guys imagine a marriage like that? Can you imagine how weird that would be in a world like we live in today? And you guys, I think, I think that when you think about that picture, it causes us to first off realize how beautiful God's design is. But I think it also causes us to realize how rare God's picture for marriage is. So that leads to the third question, which is just simply this, is what's gonna empower us to pursue this? So clearly, this picture is not natural. Uh, this picture is countercultural and is counterintuitive. So where in the world are we going to find the resources to pull this off? I don't know about you, I don't have it in myself to live up to the standard of Jesus Christ. So where in the world are we gonna find the power to pursue this? And you guys, reading it backwards, you gotta go to verse 21. This whole thing starts here. Submit to one another out of 
reverence for Christ. Notice it doesn't say, do this out of reverence for each other. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, do this as long as that other person is keeping their end of the deal. As long as he's being this kind of husband, you should be this kind of wife. And as long as she's being this kind of wife, you should be, that's not what it says. It says, you do this out of reverence for Jesus. It's out of worship. It's out of respect. It's out of response to what Jesus Christ has done for us. Can I tell you something that I think is awesome? If you read the book of Ephesians, the first few chapters are about all that Jesus has done for us, about how God loved us, about how he died for us, about how he gave himself up for us, about how he's cleansed our sin. And then it's gonna say that now we can live as children of the light, that we can live as forgiven people. And then it's gonna say that we should live lives that are full of the Holy Spirit. And then it's gonna say, here's what a spirit-led husband looks like, and here's what a spirit-led wife looks like. And why is that important? Because what it's telling us is we cannot do this apart from the Holy Spirit. We can't. God knows we can't. We need his help, which is why he has given us his Holy Spirit and why he's given us the example of Christ. So in closing, I wanna just end with some concluding thoughts. And I just wanna, real briefly, I wanna just give a word to those who are desiring marriage. So I know there's some of you in here who are single and maybe you're desiring marriage. I wanna give a word to those who are married, a word, and then lastly, a word to those who are struggling, and then I promise we're done. All right, so let me just give a quick word to those who are desiring marriage. This is very, very quick. There's a lot I could say, but let me just say this. I think for those who are desiring marriage, I think that it's important that in light of what we just said, that maybe there is, uh, I wanna encourage you to maybe shift your focus. You know, sometimes I think when you're single and you desire marriage, your focus is on finding the right person. I wanna find the right person. Where do I find the right person? I wanna tell you that if you go to the Bible and you look for passages about finding the right person, you're not gonna find a whole lot. It's not gonna say, and if you go to church at the 915 hour, you might find a really good Christian girl there. It's not gonna say that in the Bible. But if, you're, but if you shift your focus to this, um, how can I pursue becoming the right person? I think that, that you'll find a whole lot in the Bible about that. I think that's actually really helpful. So my encouragement to you, if you're someone who is single and desiring marriage, my, my is this, become the type of person that the type of person that you're looking for is looking for, all right? Let's try saying that five times fast. Become the type of person that the type of person that you're looking for is looking for, all right? I think that's a good, a good shift of focus. Let me give a word to the married, those who are married in this room. Uh, to those of us who are married, oh, well, first off, let me say, if you're, if you're a couple that's, uh, that is still investigating Jesus, if you're not followers of Christ, I think that a really important conversation that I would invite you to have with your spouse is simply this. What picture are we pursuing in marriage? And maybe you don't know the answer to that question, but I think it's important that you have a conversation. What do you think the ideal marriage should look like? And is that a picture that you're pursuing? I think it's important to ask that question. For those of us who follow Jesus, who are married, because I just wanna say this, I'm gonna try to say it as succinctly as I know how to. I just wanna say, your marriage, our marriages, your marriage needs community, and our community needs your marriage. I said, let me just say that again, and then I'll explain what I mean. Your marriage needs community, and this community, our community, needs your marriage. So let me, let me explain that, okay? Your marriage needs community. Uh, this picture that we're talking about pursuing is one that we need support. It, it does not come natural to us. It's something that requires that we are constantly coming back to Jesus and asking him for his help as we pursue this together. And so because of that, I don't think we're supposed to do it alone. 
And God has given us other marriages and he's given us other couples within the church to help us and to encourage us and to bolster us and to help give us examples along the way, to counsel us, to figure out how do we best do this. Your marriage needs community. That's why things like life group are so important where you can be with other couples who are also trying to pursue this picture together to help each other. Because there's amazing resources that exist in the body of Christ that are there to help support and give counsel and even just to build into your marriage. Did you guys know, I'll just give you one real practical example. Did you guys know that there's this incredible thing called Family Life and they put on an event that's called Weekend to Remember. Did you guys ever hear of Weekend to Remember before? I just wanna tell you, this is an awesome event that's intended to build into your marriage. For those who are following Jesus, who are looking for ways to bolster their marriage, there's an event coming up, I think this October. And so if you even just go online and go to Weekend to Remember, take a weekend away to build into your marriage. I think there's incredible resources. Your marriage needs community. But the other side of it is that our community needs your marriage. Our community needs your marriage. Because the truth is that your marriage is not just for you. It's for the world. And it's for those who are around. And, and, and it's intended to be a picture. And what I understand about pictures is that pictures are meant to be displayed. They have to be shown. And so there are, there are single people in this church. Like you guys heard from Jordan last week. There's single people in this church who need, who need to see your marriage, who need, that, who need access to you. There's other couples in this church who are younger who need counseling. There's older couples in this church who, who, who need one. We, we need each other in those ways. So your marriage, I wanna know that this community needs your marriage. And lastly, a word to those who are struggling with this, I'll invite the band to come up. Listen, I, I, I know that this whole conversation, is a, is a, it can be a little bit of a tricky one because I know that there's so many people who are in so many different places and for some of you, quite honestly, maybe this whole talk, you have just found yourself struggling. You found yourself, maybe for some of you, as you've been listening to this, you've just, you've just been mad, this whole conversation. And maybe, you're, maybe you've been mad at your spouse or you're mad at your ex, or maybe, maybe you're mad at yourself. Maybe you're just mad at me. Maybe seriously, you're just like, I know what's gonna happen now. I'm gonna get in the car afterwards and my spouse is gonna ask me, there's gonna be a moment of silence. They're gonna be like, so what'd you think of the sermon? I'm gonna be like, Tony, hate that guy. He did it again, right? And, and so can I, just, can, I just, uh, can I just encourage you this way? I just wanna encourage you guys. We have to show grace to each other. We have to. Husbands, your wife will never get this perfect. And wives, your husband will never do this perfectly. It, but, but I would encourage you, don't give up on this picture and be patient. Be patient as you pursue it together. Uh, the truth is that the goal is not that we do it perfect. The goal is that we do it increasingly, that more and more throughout time we live. It takes a lifetime to live into this picture. And I just wanna encourage you that way. For some of you, as you hear this, you're not mad. You're just sad. This whole conversation makes you sad. And maybe the reason is because you hear this and you think to yourself, man, I feel like this is awesome, but it's coming too late. I'm, I'm already married, I'm already divorced, I've already went through that. Maybe for you, you're like, this is my second marriage, my third, maybe fourth marriage. Maybe for some of you, it's your fifth marriage. Maybe for some of you, you're like, in, in this marriage that I'm in right now, it was not built upon this picture. And maybe it makes you sad. But you guys, I got, I got some good news for you. And, and this is what I love about Jesus, is there's always good news. It's never too late. It's never. It's never too late. It's never too late to say, I wanna start living for Jesus in this area of my life today. And out of reverence for Christ, 
I can start living into this picture. Even if your spouse is not interested in living in this picture, you can begin out of reverence for Jesus stepping into this picture. And then lastly, I just wanna say this. I know that there are some folks maybe here even right now who are saying this. You're saying, man, I want to. I want to pursue this picture. But my spouse doesn't. And so, so what am I supposed to do? And I know that there's some of you who are here and you, listen, you come week in and week out and you're, you are, God is working in your life and you want to pursue him. And for some of you, it just breaks your heart because you have a spouse that's at home and they won't come or they're not interested or they're not running the same direction you're running. And I know that for some of you, that, that can be so challenging. It's easy for me to say that, but I know it's so difficult for you. Can I, can I just encourage you this way, if that's you? Can I just encourage you? Keep going. Just keep going, keep running. And can I just also encourage you in this? It's easy to say this, but it's true. Don't ever underestimate the power of your faithfulness, of your faithful example. I wish I, I, wish I had time to get into all of the verses that talk about the incredible power that a faithful spouse has on their unbelieving spouse. The Bible's gonna say amazing things about that. I love what it says in 1 Corinthians 7. It says, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? And how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So there's much more I wish I could say to you, but my encouragement to you is just, man, we see you and we love you. And I just wanna encourage you to keep running and we wanna support you however we can. Don't give up, keep going, keep going. God will use your faithfulness. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, we wanna say thank you that you have not left us in the dark <clears throat> about the things that you desire for us, even in relationships like marriage. And we're grateful for that. But God, it's true that the picture that you've provided is one that we realize we can't do on our own. It's gonna require a strength and a power that's outside of ourselves. And because of that, we're grateful that you've given us Jesus. We're thankful that you've given us the Holy Spirit. And so God, I pray for husbands and wives in this room that as we pursue this picture, that we would look to you to be our source of strength. We need your help. So we're asking you that you'd help us, God. I thank you that this is a picture, though, that the picture that you give us is intended to be an example of the love that you have for us. Thank you for the love that you've given to us, a self-sacrificing love, a love that dies to itself, a love that nourishes and that cherishes us. That's the kind of love that we receive from you. And so I pray that that'd be the kind of love that we give to each other. So God, we come to you, we worship you, we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.